have the role to play in making the food system better, especially the young people because when we talk about making a better food system, we mean a better food system for the next generation and we are the people of the next generation. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti and I'm the Sfin Global Community and Project Manager. In the framework of the Slow Food event Terra Madre, today we're exploring the ecosystems shaped by agroecology. In the previous podcast episode, we have listened to Miguel Altieri, one of the pioneers of agroecology, talking about the connection between the current agricultural system and the pandemic. We have also listened to Alice Waters, illustrating her concept of school-supported agriculture. Well, today you are going to get deeper into the topic of sustainable agriculture, food sovereignty, school gardens, cultural identity and much more. I will now leave the word to Melanie Antin, the podcast host for today, who is a young activist of Slow Food France. She has a background in anthropology and she's a drama teacher. Nice combination, right? Melanie is passionate about agroecology and writing. She has a beautiful blog showcasing stories of resistance among farmers of all over the world called Les Mauvaises Herbes. You'll find the link in the podcast description. So thank you, Melanie, for your support. Hi everyone, my name is Melanie from Slow Food France. For this podcast, I wanted to question the concept of agroecology from different perspectives and show you how it can be understood as a tool for the defense of territories and their specificities. Beyond agriculture, agroecology could be a way to resist to an hegemonic way of inhabiting the world. First of all, it seemed relevant to me to discuss it in the context of the health crisis, which for the past year has been questioning an hegemonic agricultural model, often dependent on exports and based on the intensification and modernization of agrarian systems. In the South, these measures are driven by rural development policies by recommendations of multilateral organizations. Food-producing agriculture is gradually being displaced, transformed, or even abandoned in favor of large-scale commercial agriculture, endangering rural populations, ecosystems, and their biodiversity. The interweaving of agricultural and food systems and the global financial markets is further proof that food is a commodity, like any other, subject to speculation. At this time of sanitary crisis, food sovereignty takes on its full meaning. In 2007, as a result of the International Forum for Food Sovereignty held by La Via Campesina, a declaration on people's food sovereignty was issued, defined as the right of people to healthy, culturally appropriate food produced using sustainable and environmentally 
friendly missiles, as well as their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. It represents a strategy of resistance. In this declaration, agroecology would be the key to the success of food sovereignty and must be at the heart of debates on the model of society we want. Agroecology is an evolving concept that can vary from one context to another. In general, agroecological movements not only limit agroecology to a set of practices, but also has a space of resistance based on social justice, cultural valorization, spirituality and solidarity values, amongst others. In this podcast, we will discuss the signification of agroecology. You will listen to Edi Mukiwi, agronomist, executive director of Slow Food Uganda and vice president of Slow Food International. You will hear the voice of Helda Morales, biologist researcher from El Colegio de la Frontera Sur in Mexico, specialized in pest management and sustainable agriculture. And finally, you will listen to Paola Migliorini, professor in agronomy at the University of Gastronomic Science in Italy, but also the president of Agroecology Europe. I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, Eddie Mochiri, the vice president of Slow Food International and also the team leader for Slow Food Uganda. I Uh, manage the office here in Uganda and I work with other colleagues here to coordinate all the slow food activities. I'm also an advisor to the Agroecology Fund. My name is Helda Morales. I've been working for 22 years in the research group of agroecology at the Colegio de la Frontera del Sur, ECOSUR. This group was one of the first to approach agroecology as it is, with its name. What is very interesting is that since the birth of our group, it has always been interdisciplinary. This was also thanks to the, let's say, rebel students that in the 60s started to leave Mexico City, mainly from the UNAM University, and they were saying, Enough, science cannot be based only here in the metropolitan region, we need to go to the fields. So this brought to the formation of small research centers in rural areas. One of those was called CIES, Ecological Research Center of the Southeast, which in 1994 became ECOSUR. So these pioneers were promoting the concept of doing research for the people and together with the people, and they were the ones to found our research group. I'm Paola Migliorini. I am uh, associate professor at the University of Gastronomic Science in agronomy and crop production. I work there since uh, more than 10 years and I am convenor of uh, the Master in Agroecology and Food Sovereignty that we started this, uh, this year, in 2020, as well as other courses in um, sustainability, agroecosystem, uh, agrobiodiversity, and, and, and agroecology and organic farming. Um, and I am also now, uh, since uh, two years, uh, th three years al almost, uh, 
president of Agroecology Europe, that is a European Association for Agroecology, and also active in um, in IFAM, the International Federation of Organic Agricultural Movements, in particular in the Agro Bio Mediterraneo Regional Board. Our guests live in countries that have been heavily impacted by the Green Revolution, a set of politics and measures aimed at modernizing agricultural techniques in countries considered as underdeveloped. This policy is based on the intensification of agri agriculture, mechanization and the use of pesticides and high-yield varieties. Mexico was the first laboratory of the Green Revolution in the 1940s. From the 1960s onwards, it spread widely to the Latin American continent and to the global south in general. In Mexico, the cultivation of corn is a good example of the changes that Mexican agriculture has undergone. Corn is a controversial issue in Mexico, as it is deeply rooted into the Mexican imagination, identity, spirituality and culture. Let's take the example of tortillas, at the basis of the Mexican diet. They require a long process, from the selection of the seeds, the cultivation of the corn, to the expert hands that will shape the tortillas. Since the introduction of high-yield varieties in the Mexican fields and the U.S. corn, but also since the 1990s, the opening up of the country to foreign industrial flour, the traditional tortillas and native corn have been endangered. Helda will explain us and she will highlight the links between these tortillas and the health issues in the country. Pues en principios de los años 90 entró con tanta fuerza. Yes, so in the beginning of the 90s, the maseca industrial flour to make tortillas was literally pushed into the market. It was the product of an alliance between rich people in Mexico. It was supported by the media businessman Salinas Pliego, founder of the Grupo Salinas, who facilitated the introduction of the maseca in every corner of the country. It's incredible that here, in the highlands of Chiapas, in every indigenous community whose main crop is corn, every morning you hear the motorbike coming and the megaphone saying that they are carrying the tortillas made with industrialized flour. This was partially due to the free trade agreement with the USA. But it's very interesting to know that the US didn't want corn to be included in the agreement because they knew that if corn had been included, most of the farmers would have found themselves deprived of their main production crop. And this could cause big emigration waves towards the United States. But for the Mexican government, this was an opportunity to free the communal lands, which could then be privatized and to have cheap workforce for the construction of the Puebla-Panama corridor. 
they wanted the farmers to be free to go and work in the industries. There was a strong negotiation between the US and Mexico and Mexico eventually won. So the corn from industrial agriculture entered the country with the alliance of this wealthy family of the tortilla flour. And the government opened the doors for them to build tortillerias, the places where tortillas are sold, all over the country and without any type of regulation. Whereas when someone wants to open a tortilleria based on native corn and artisanal nixtamalization, he has to face a very heavy bureaucracy with the request of a lot of health permits and so on. So there is no way they can compete with industrial tortillerias. Anyway, fortunately, in the past few years, there has been a raise in awareness that this is not right. We cannot lose the quality of the taste of our tortilla and we have to care more about nutrition. My colleague Jaime Page has been studying the cases of diabetes in Chiapas, which reached an unbelievable amount. And he associates the diabetes, first of all, with the high consumption of sweet beverages, but also is starting to see a relation with the tortillas with industrialized corn flour. But you can actually try it yourself. When you eat a tortilla made of industrial flour, it tastes sweet, while the artisanal tortilla is not. In Uganda now, Eddie will show us that agronomy training directly serves as a model of agricultural development in the country. This is a good example to understand that agricultural intensification and the destruction of the social fabric in the countryside has been to the benefit of large monocultures dedicated to export. The training uh, for agriculturists in Africa has always been based on the ethos of the Green Revolution. Uh, most of the trainings have been designed to feed the, the, the interests of those who are working towards the Green Revolution, the interests of the conventional uh, food system, the interests of the conventional input dealers, and all the knowledge uh, uh, has been gathered all around this. This is the same training which I went through. So when I saw also that there was this kind of lack of sustainability uh, issues in the training in Africa, I had to think otherwise. I was also actually at one point consumed into this system where I was uh, persuaded and uh, worked to promote uh, super hybrid maize seeds, which eventually failed the farmers. And I felt so much touched and I said, things must change. We need to go back to our... Uh, traditional farming systems, we need to start thinking about agroecology, respecting agroecosystems, respecting uh, people's indigenous knowledge in producing their own food. And this is when I made a, a, a U-turn from this conventional system and started looking for knowledge on sustainability. So since then, uh, when I quit that job of uh, distributing uh, synthetic chemicals and hybrid seeds to the farmers, I started working with those very farmers who were disappointed in that conventional system to rebuild the additional mm -hmm. systems. So that is when I made a decision not to follow exactly what I was taught, but to find new knowledge which was actually out there in the communities. The new knowledge was out there in the internet. And also 
uh, um, being a slow food member in 2008 was a very big push for me uh, and uh, to get to get the confidence to move in this uh, uh, to move further in building a better food and agricultural system uh, sustainable agriculture is actually our traditional farming system in Africa when you go to this training in the university that your mind is twisted to a conventional system and you start believing in this system because it's based on figures it's based on data it's based on scientific facts but also sometimes uh, this uh, system ignores social facts things which actually exist in the in the communities hedi um, does your government supports agroecology what is the main orientation in agricultural policy in uganda the government always want to uh, use the agricultural sector to offset the balance of payments through promoting export oriented agriculture and there is uh, quite a lot of promotion of commercialization of agriculture and the government is trying to discourage people from growing uh, subsistence or from practicing subsistence farming or subsistence agriculture which is wrong in any society people should first feed themselves people should have this sovereignty and the security before we think about uh, exporting but right now the governments are pushing a lot for export oriented agriculture because they need to to report to world bank or imf for more loans that the agricultural sector can actually they are actually progressing with the gdp uh, many politicians are owning big farms but also many politicians are working uh, uh with uh, direct foreign investments and which breeds actually land grabbing some of these uh, farms which you which many people may think may belong to politicians actually uh, actually really belong to other foreign investors or other uh, external uh, bodies or corporations and these politicians are sometimes only agents uh in many cases policies are passed to protect these large scale export oriented agricultural investments that's why many countries are trying to promote industrial agriculture at the expense of sustainable agriculture or agroecology after this rather pessimistic landscape We're going to understand how agroecology can be a tool to fight against this unique model of herbal development. More than a set of sustainable agricultural practices, agroecology carries the seed of a powerful social and political movement that put at its core the defense of life and the celebration of diversity in all its forms. Helda, could you give us your definition of agroecology? Pues sí. Eh como soy ecóloga y soy académica eh, yo parto so uh, since i am an ecologist and an academic i define agroecology as a science that studies the interactions between organisms in the agricultural field and with its surroundings but also the interactions with society so how urban rural political and global societies influence what we produce and how we produce it For this reason, it must be an interdisciplinary science in which different types of sciences and knowledge dialogue with each other, including farmers' knowledge and consumers' knowledge. And to make it possible that this science has an impact on our territories, it has to convert itself into a political movement and make connections with political movements. <laughs> 
We cannot have agroecology without access to land. We cannot have agroecology if we are not organized as producers and consumers. So only in this way, with this deep combination of knowledge, we have a weapon to achieve food sovereignty, equity, feminism and lack of racism. I mention feminism because there is no agroecology without feminism. And this change is happening, so I have a lot of hope that we are going in the right direction. And how do you think science con could contribute to the agroecological movement and participate to this dialogue of knowledge? Tenemos uh, razón en criticar esa ciencia hegemónica que se ha puesto al servicio de la industria. We are right to criticize the hegemonic science that is serving industry and the agriculture of death. But we have to recognize that from the academy and science we have a lot to give to agroecology. Because even if the indigenous and traditional knowledge is so deep and no one can know the land better than the producers on that very land, there are also things that we can help with. For example, with our tools and systematization processes, the microscopes, the access to laboratories and the possibilities to forecast the weather. Also, another important aspect is access to the market. Agroecology is something we have to eat. If agroecological products don't have a market, they are going to nourish the families in the fields. But what about who lives in the city? So it's also important to study those processes. A quick reminder that you can support the Sfin podcast and have access to extra material by becoming a Slow Food Youth Network patron on patreon.com slash join slash Slow Food Youth Network. Paula, I've noticed you made your PhD thesis with Miguel Altieri, one of the fathers of agroecological movement. Do you share his definition of agroecology as a science, a practice and a movement? When we founded Agroecology Europe, uh, it was a very uh, participated approach. So the founder were many, many were uh, from the academic, uh, academic side, but of course the, the association definitely is was not and is not an academic at all so it's a bro broad association where we include uh, basically everybody that want to to sustain um, and so we have a strong focus on uh, on science on practice and on social movements could you explain us how an agroecological ecosystem has more environmental um, benefits and how it is more resilient to natural disasters. If you look at, uh, for example, um, a polyculture farm, in, in a local polyculture farm, in maybe in one hectare you have uh, some, some uh, horticulture, uh, some cereals, some little animal, no? some chicken, uh, agroforestry, uh, intercropping, and there are generally in, in a, an agroforestry system seven eight layers of, of uh, let's say of uh, vertical no? of, of leaves so when there is a, a, a hurricane or a heavy rain anyhow the soil are totally protected in a 
in a monoculture, even if we use organic seed or anyhow, for example, local seed, but it is a row of uh, wheat, just as an example, and there is an heavy rain and there is a, the, the soil is anyhow uh, destroyed or there is much more risk for erosion and um, nitrification. No? So there is loss of nitrogen, loss of organic matter, loss of soil structure. In Europe, the, the, the weight, the, the respons responsibility of agriculture in the greenhouse gas emission is 7 and 10 percentage. So it, it's anyhow a lot, considering that should be not zero, but uh, negative. I mean, uh, agriculture through carbon, through cultivation of, of plants uh, should absorb and this is possible and it is clearly proved in organic sector. And there is a very nice study done by FAO, Nadia Shalabba, together with Feeble and many others uh, that made scenarios that we can feed the world with converting the whole world into organic. So it's not true the, the narrative that GMO uh, supporters said, no? that with agriculture, with organic, we can't feed the world. Not at all. It's possible that, that there is... The yield gap is limited, but the, ben the environmental and social benefits are so huge that there is no, no doubt. The production at the moment uh, of our feed stock is v valid for probably 12 or 10 uh, billion people. So we are, we are producing even much. The, of course, there is a problem of, of resource distribution. For Eddie, agriculture also contributes to the valorization of the biocultural heritage, since it understands and it is based on the nesting of cultural and biological aspects of ecosystem. Um, I think uh, agroecology respects ecology or ecosystems, uh, and um, ecosystems are directly linked to people's culture. The indigenous territories, the peasant farmers, artisanal fisher folks, um, uh, the tangible and intangible uh, biodiversity and resources—all these things are embedded in the in in in, in agroecology, and they are all promoted and preserved under agroecology. Given that food is linked to cultural and identity imaginaries, the trend towards homogenization of food landscape could also be observed as a process of erasing local specificities or even as a post-colonial continuity. It seems that some agroecological movements also take up these questions and even look at agroecology as a way to repair self-esteem and, and to care for identities. What do you think about it? Sí, Melanie, es eh, súper importante esto de la, de la autoestima que estás, que estás hablando porque... Yes, Melanie, it's super important the topic of self-esteem which you are mentioning. For example, this happened when I used to go and meet some farmer communities during my research about plague management prior to pesticides. They were so surprised that we went to ask them to teach us while they expected us to be the teachers. And they were saying, yeah, but don't be selfish. You have been to the university. Tell us what you learned. 
And unfortunately, this was a strategy of a lot of governments to break the social fabric and not to support small grassroots organizations that are looking for answers and are working as a community. A lot of governments have started doing it right now because they fear this power, the power of organized people. But it's those grassroots organizations which help us reconstruct the social fabric to rescue our territories from both the cultural and environmental point of view. We have seen that to allow agroecology to flourish in different territories and in our plates, we have to transform it into a movement. We have to support farmers' organizations and regional organizations to promote agroecological food. So to start this movement, we have first of all to begin to think about what we are eating. We have to decolonize our diet and re-evaluate traditional diets. Harvard University has recently published the Healthy Eating Plate, which looks quite political. And they say, this plate is based on science. Nutritional science keeps evolving, but for what we know right now, this is how we should be eating. And it's not the plate that governments and industries are trying to sell us. So, if we compare the plate of Harvard University with the daily plate of rural families from here, in the southeast of Mexico, they are almost the same. Food is uh, linked with culture, no? and um, we, we can't talk about agriculture without linking this with, with diets. So when we talk about uh, sustainable agriculture, we have to link with sustainable diets. This issue is central and has a lot to do with anthropology, with history, with uh, philosophy, with uh, perception. No? How do we perceive our food? When I was at the university, I also tried to study the assimilation of colonial foods into the African food cultures. And you realize that um, the way colonial uh, dishes were assimilated into the African food culture we have today in many communities is because uh, the, 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 the colonial food was painted as holy food in some places and also food for the rich. Uh, uh, food that shows a higher status in the community and sometimes the African dishes were also uh, uh, promoted as food for the poor, food for the less privileged so in the end with time people used to get this kind of mentality that eating your traditional food eating uh, locally is um, uh, uh, it's a sign of poverty it's the same thing which we have right now uh, in the middle class, you realize that in Europe and USA uh, and other parts of the developed world, obesity or overweight is a sign of uh, uh, is a problem of the low income eaters. It's a sign of the low income uh, people in many places who cannot afford a very uh, healthy, nutritious food. But here, in in many countries in in Africa, also here in Uganda overweight or obesity is taken to be a sign of wealth, like uh, a, a sign of families being well off. So you find a lot of overweight children, a lot of obese children, a lot of obese people in he- wealthier families than in the rural places where people actually feed on fresh, diverse meals and diets than the people who go to uh, uh, fast food uh, uh, restaurants um, uh, because the fast food restaurants are marketing as high class. 
And how are you working with Slow Food Uganda to promote these traditional foods? First of all, we are working with uh, Slow Food Gardens in Africa. In Uganda, we um, we have so far since 2011 created uh, 370 agroecology gardens in schools and communities. Where we are running six presidia, one on indigenous cows, in indigenous cattle, the Ankole cattle, Longhorn cattle presidium. We have uh, two presidia on coffee. One is on the traditional Arabica variety called Nyasaland, and another one is on Kisansa, which is a Liberica variety of coffee. Four varieties of traditional and indigenous finger millet in eastern Uganda. And also we have uh, one presidium on uh, nine varieties of uh, uh, climbing yams. This is also working on restoring the traditional agroforestry systems where uh, yams are grown in central Uganda. And um, how are the gardens working? Like how, how, how it is organized? Uh, the school gardens are, uh, are simple gardens uh, meant for different purposes and they are created uh, entirely by the grassroots network in schools and communities. Then they nominate uh, themselves to be part of the gardens network. Then we go and meet them and uh, explain to them more about the Slow Food Gardens project. They are not only meant to increase the availability of fresh, uh, nutritious food to the communities, but also uh, serve other purposes like food education, which is highly needed right now here uh, in Africa and elsewhere in the world. Um, gardens also serve the purpose of building resilience in the communities by fighting climate change, using locally available materials, spreading the message on agroecology and tradi other traditional farming systems. But also gardens also help to preserve uh, knowledge and also to preserve biodiversity. In this current situation of the pandemic, these gardens, especially community gardens and some school gardens have been very instrumental in making sure that people continue to feed themselves on nutritious uh, food, fresh food uh, on a daily basis. Now, let's have a closer look at how these agroecological ecosystems look like. We'll take you on a journey to Mexico to discover the milpa system and then to a traditional Uganda farm with Eddie. Hemos estado tratando de poner la milpa entera. The milpa is our traditional agroecological system. We actually tried to register the whole milpa as a slow food presidium. The presidia of slow food are networks of producers that sustain quality productions at risk of extinction. They protect unique regions and ecosystems and recover traditional processing methods and they safeguard native breeds and local plant varieties. The milpa is not only corn, beans and pumpkin, it's staple crops, but there are also a lot of herbs, which are really making the diversity and richness of the cultivation and are also important for our health. For example, in the Lacandon jungle, more than 150 different species in one milpa have been documented. 
because in addition to the three main cultivars, there are all those others that most of the time grow by themselves. Sometimes I ask farmers, do you plant green tomatoes in your milpa? And they reply, no. But then I see it and I ask, but it's here. And they say, ah yes, but it grows by itself, I didn't plant it. In addition to this, you have trees in the milpa. They attract birds that help keeping plugs under control. And all this contributes to the richness of our traditional diet. First of all, Uganda is, uh, like many other countries in Africa, uh, is highly diverse in terms of biology, in terms of uh, culture, in terms of uh, uh, values and uh, other things which make a society. Uganda is very, very is a very diverse uh, country. So uh, being diverse means different practices, different uh, systems are implemented in different localities or in different parts of the country. I'll start with uh, uh, at the example of uh, uh, central Uganda here, where you have the uh, traditional, uh, where the traditional farming system is based on uh, agroforestry and mixed farming. Uh, even however close we are to uh, the biggest freshwater lake, um, Lake Victoria, you find uh, many crops uh, are grown on the same piece of plot at the same time. I have a last question, Paola. In France, now we're talking more about agroecology, but I feel like in people's mind, it is just replacing organic and could finally empty the meaning and, and the transformative power of agroecology. So finally, could you explain us the difference between an organic and an agroecological farm? Can organic farms have intensive monocrops? Yeah, actually it doesn't make sense also for the organic. Let's say the European uh, legal framework, the crop rotation, are compulsory. On the other hand, you can you can interpret crop rotation in many different ways. There are some, um, again, big company and big farm that uh, maybe, uh, let's say, have very unified uh, large uh, field with a kind of monocrop. But again, it's a... It's, a, it's important to understand that there is a space because the next year in time, it can't be the same crop. Organic can have some limits due to the interpretation of the law, but the, the principle and the goal are very clear and they are in the agroecological approach. Then there are also ways to some, somehow avoid no? the, the, the <laughs> interpretate in a very limiting factors, uh, the rules. And so the idea is that agroecology should sustain and foster no? uh, even more, much more the diversification mm, through, not only through regulation, that is of course one uh, supporting force, but the drivers should come also from the society, from the social movement, from the citizen, from the um, territories. So for example, the idea to have organic uh, district, no? it's a good idea because it's a way, because the farmer can't be alone. It's not the farmer alone that can again, change the market. They don't have the power to do it, or not alone. So with the different part of the society, education, politics, we can work together to, to improve it. With these words, our podcast is coming to an end. As a conclusion, through agroecology, peasants, rural workers, indigenous people and others 
ask for the respect of their territories, local food practices and community forms of life. Agroecology questions our material and spiritual relationship with living beings and consider biocultural diversity central. Agroecology opens up spaces of existence and resistance based on solidarity. It can be a powerful tool for social transformation when it is heard from the perspective of those who carry it. Let us remember that 70% of smallholder farmers are the world's food providers and have the right to express themselves and to choose the agricultural models they want for their family and communities. Beyond agriculture, agroecology offers a plural reading of the world and helps to question our preconceived ideas about humanity. I would like to thank you for listening and I hope you have learned about agroecology. I also would like to give a special thanks to our speakers for their time and to Valentina for her patience. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melanie, for accompanying us in this journey about agroecology. And to all our listeners, also remember to join us on Patreon. This month we will upload another interview related to agroecology, the one of Viviana Neyen Catrileo, a Mapuche indigenous woman and spokesperson of Ana Muri, the National Association of Rural and Indigenous Women in Chile. So don't miss it! I remind you that this series of the podcast is organized on the occasion of Terra Madre 2020, the biggest event that the Slow Food Movement organizes every two years. This edition, due to the global pandemic, has a big digital part and you can find the whole program on terramadresalonedelgusto.com. The link is on the podcast description. This is Valentina Gritti and you are listening to the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. Ciao!